Welcome to the CSIS Podcast. I'm Colin Quinn. If you've been following this podcast for the last year, you might have noticed what I did when I was putting this show together, and it's that although we cover the whole world and its goings-on every week, this episode will be the first one of 2016 that talks exclusively about Syria. I think that some of that partly comes from the fact that there are easier things to talk about, problems that have a clearer solution, and Syria certainly doesn't fit that bill. But complexity shouldn't be used as an excuse, and so today we're taking a deeper dive than usual. This week we're hearing from National Public Radio NPR's Alison Muse, who's been reporting on Syria's civil war since 2012. We're going to talk about how Syrians on all sides feel about this war, the challenges of being a reporter in a war zone, and what way forward, if any, there is for the country. Alison is based in Beirut and joined me on the phone. We started by discussing the evacuation that's now taking place in eastern Aleppo as the once rebel stronghold begins to crumble. Um, tell us about the progress of the evacuation. I know there's been some um, stop-start to it. Indeed, it's been quite a fluid uh, past couple of days, to say the least. Yesterday, we did have the first evacuations take place after they had um, been held up the day before, a ceasefire held. Uh, the Red Cross and its Syrian partner, the Red Crescent, were able to evacuate thousands, including, they said, hundreds of children and wounded people uh, who were bused to rebel-held countryside further north. And then today, we got news in the morning that, that uh, everything had been held up. Uh, the WHO representative in Syria said her staff uh, were asked to leave without an explanation. Um, there are some mixed reports about why exactly this happened. Uh, Syrian state media say that the rebels had tried to smuggle hostages that they had on the buses with them and that they had also tried to take heavier arms than they were supposedly allowed. And um, Hezbollah's media wing, uh, Hezbollah being Syria's ally, said that there were protests uh, of people from two pro-government villages in the north, which are besieged by the rebels, and that those people from those villages had actually blocked the buses coming out of Aleppo, demanding that their villages get a similar evacuation. So it's kind of a microcosm of how complex this war is and how difficult these agreements are to hammer out because you have so many sides, so many forces, everybody, you know, kind of wanted to attach their own demands. Um, until now, it's still unclear um, if it could pick up today, the evacuations. I know the humanitarians are are committed to keep working as long as possible and um, and hopefully things will get back on track. But it's, uh, it's very contentious, and there are still thousands of people trapped in the siege, as I understand from the Red Cross. And is there any sense of how many actually there are to evacuate? I know there's been a couple thousand so far, but how far is it to go? Um, I'm hearing numbers um, uh, somewhere between five and 10,000, I believe, have been evacuated already. Um, and don't forget that tens of thousands, some people say 50, some people say 80,000 already fled this besieged area in the past couple weeks as the offensive progressed. You know, some people fled deeper into the siege, but others found themselves under bombing. They realized they'd reached the end of the line and they fled across the front line to the government side. And I spoke to some of those people. So you've already had a mass displacement and 
there could be, uh, it's, it's unclear how many people are, are left to evacuate, but um, the humanitarians say it's still thousands of people and including wounded and children. And, and what are the prospects then for people who are evacuated, say for the people who go to these uh, rebel-held areas further north and also the people that go back into government hands? Uh, well, to start with um, the government side, uh, they've at least escaped airstrikes and shelling. Maybe when this last rebel pocket is cleared, at least the war in the city ends because, you know, for the past four and a half years since the rebels took over the eastern side, you've had not only the airstrikes and relentless shelling on the rebel-held side, but you've also had relentless rebel shelling, often, you know, completely uh, arbitrary against the regime side, which has killed many civilians. So I think at, at the very least, the city will become a safer place. Um, as far as um, the, the males, they're in a different kind of predicament because in Syria, military services is mandatory. So those men um, will likely have to serve in the army, even if they've done army service. We hear about people getting called into the reserves. And, you know, this is a nationwide thing in Syria. And some of those people in the siege, you know, have been uh, staunchly anti-Assad. They've, you know, used their real names. They've used their identities. They've exposed themselves. And they fear the worst, and that is why this evacuation um, was called for, because um, people simply do not trust the state security apparatus to uh, to just leave them alone and let them return to civilian life after this is all over. And and add to that the, the humanitarian situation. I mean, tens of these thousands of people have fled. Many others have been are living have been living displaced over the years um, in the government held side of Aleppo. Till now, you had tens of thousands who had fled the original rebel incursion in 2012. So you have a lot of poverty. You have a lot of homeless people. And right now, the humanitarian agencies are really struggling to accommodate this huge influx. Uh, the UN uh, said last week that they had about 10,000 people sheltering. Uh, in an old factory, I believe it was, and the roof was leaking, and thousands of them actually left. Um, they said they'd left to go on to stay with relatives or friends. Uh, who's to know? But people are certainly in a precarious situation on the government side. On the rebel side, those people who left a northern rebel-held country, um, you know, it's relatively safer because they're no longer in a siege and stuck um, at least, you know, they can have access to food and medical care, but the situation is not safe. Um, Idlib has been under bombardment these past few weeks as well. Uh, you know, we hear about uh, civilian infrastructure being targeted there over the years, and, you know, it hasn't been easy for people to kind of build a, build a life, build a society, even if it's uh, relatively safer and um, and it's a different reality for them politically, for those who, you know, are committed to this um, uprising, to this rebellion. If in Idlib, they're in a position where, you know, the, the government has just been bussing, you know, all of the deplorables to Idlib, you know, all these rebels who take these deals um, and don't want to serve in the 
in the army for, you know, very good reasons. They don't want to turn their guns against their guys that they were just fighting with uh, the day before. So now they find themselves in Idlib. And Idlib is a whole other deal. Um, it's uh, dominated by Jaysh al-Fatah, which is, um, you know, a former al-Qaeda affiliate, which the U.S. still considers part of al-Qaeda, dominates, as well as Ahrar al-Sham, which is a hardline Salafi jihadi group. Um, so it's a, it's a whole other game for them there. And it's a place that Western backers um, are maybe not likely to uh, continue support for, at least militarily, at least to the point where they could continue their goal of trying to topple uh, Assad. And I talked to some people who have already fled to Idlib from previous, uh, previous deals with the government, and they said it's extremely scary. Activists have been abducted, at rebel checkpoints there. Um, there's intra-fighting between rebel groups. The rebels of Daraya, for example, that uh, suburb of Damascus that held out for four and a half years or four years or so under uh, bombardment, they were originally welcomed as heroes. Um, but then, you know, one of their commanders turned up dead and no one really knows what happened. So it's, it's a very... A different environment there. And the other option, of course, is to go to the northern countryside of Aleppo, and that is where Turkey is supporting um, these rebels not to fight Assad, as we know, but to um, push ISIS back so that they don't have a situation where it's uh, YPG Kurds um, connecting that territory and creating a Kurdish autonomous zone on their border. So Basically, it's kind of the end of the rebellion as we know it. The rebels no longer have a foothold in any major city. So if, if you're on the fighting on the side of Assad, I mean, this this must be a, a big turning point uh, in the war. That is there a sense that perhaps there's an end in sight? Uh, it could be. I think it, it certainly dashed a lot of people's hopes, although I think many opposition activists know that, you know, things had been going this way a long time. As soon as, you know, Erdogan started meeting with Putin and uh, the Euphrates shield operation began, you know, you didn't hear about Aleppo so much in the Turkish press, including this past week. You didn't hear a word. So I think this was kind of a sign things have shifted. So it certainly is disappointing for those activists who had committed themselves to this cause although for many it had turned into a civil war a long time ago. Um, is it over in the sense that the war is over? Definitely not. Um, Assad is certainly strengthened. Um, the, his government controls what they call, or ha what has been referred to as the useful part of Syria. So going all the way from the Lebanese border, to the Syrian capital, Homs, Hama, um, and coast and now um, they have Aleppo almost secured but don't forget the rebels still have large swaths of territory in the countryside in many provinces um, and uh, and then you have the war with uh, Islamic State you have um, Kurdish-led forces in the north and you have conflicts that crop up between all of these groups so there will certainly continue to be fighting on many fronts throughout Syria for, for the foreseeable future. 
but is it um, it's the end of this kind of dynamic where it's the the regime and the rebels it's it's a very different playing field now now it's kind of down to your really uh, veteran jihadis veteran Baathists or regime and uh, veteran uh, Kurdish fighters do you get a sense from people that there's a big international element here? Obviously, Russia's intervention was was pivotal, but has that borne out, say, on the ground uh, in terms of uh, how Assad's forces have been shored up and uh, how much outside influences have kind of brought to bear on this conflict? I think it was June or July 2015 when Assad said that his forces would have to pull back from certain areas and that they had to basically conserve their energy and that it was not possible to retake all of Syria. Um, And just a few months later, uh, Russia entered the war and uh, a lot of things changed. Of course, these gains are are not... uh, uh, infallible or however we want to describe I mean we they retook Palmyra with Russia's help and now it's fallen again which is you know quite quite an upset but uh Russia's entrance into the war was a game changer um I think it was a couple months ago that Assad said he promised to retake all of Syria so a complete 180 and he specifically highlighted Aleppo because he said Aleppo is where Turkey had put all of its resources in, and that was where Turkey wanted to support its Islamist project. And that was his big focus, and he indeed has retaken Aleppo. Um, and it's hard to see a scenario where if Western backers, or even forget Western backers, the, the Gulf and Turkey, if they hadn't supported the rebels to the point of holding Aleppo, why would they then put in resources to take it back? So I want to I want to pivot now just to talk about um, a different aspect of the war, which is the this information war and even the the methods of gathering information. How you maybe go about doing that when uh, the situation is is frankly so dangerous. So would you tell us a little bit about kind of the the challenges that you faced uh, while um, reporting on this, and you know how maybe this is a little different to to maybe what you've come up against previously. You know, covering this war is certainly a challenge. Why? Because we do not have access to every place we want to go. Um, in, I was in Syria recently. I was in Damascus and Damascus countryside uh, with a government visa. And, um, you know, that was, that was the first time I'd gotten a government visa in the past few years. You know, I'd applied before. Uh, wasn't accepted, and we were kind of told that, oh, they're not letting any American citizens in. Only big TV networks would go, and they would send, you know, somebody with a foreign passport. So that was a challenge. Um, and when we did get in, it was it was great. And, you know, of course, you get flack for wherever you go by the other side. But I had my contacts already in the Damascus countryside, and I was able to link up with them. And that was excellent because you go there, you see with your own eyes. In this case, it was the Damascus suburb of Qutsayya, which recently uh, made a deal between the rebels there and the government forces that the town 
would, uh, the rebels would leave. Those who wanted to would leave. Those who wanted to stay would kind of settle their status. Um, and um, the town would just go back to normal. And, you know, we met with different people from the town um, who had been part of negotiating that deal. And my original contact was uh, a young guy who had worked on the deal. And they basically said, you know, this this is uh, the reality. We needed to go back to normal and we needed to have things function. And, um, and the rebels, I spoke to one of the rebels who left to the countryside in Idlib. And he said, you know, the... The regime was telling us, we'll make you into another Daraya. Uh, Daraya being a suburb that was completely almost leveled and um, and uh, besieged for four years. So it's, you know, nobody is under any illusions that this happened um, because of, uh, you know, peaceful diplomacy. You know, people are making calculations. This is a civil war. And one side right now is winning. And people do want their kids to go to a regular school with a diploma at the end of it. And, um, you know, some people are sick and tired of the war, no matter who they side with and believe in. When I talked to, I checked in with that young activist um, uh, a few days ago, and he said, yeah, things are good. He said, but, you know, of course, all the young men are wondering, you know, when are we going to get picked up? to go in the army. So, you know, nobody is saying on the ground that this is perfect and this is, you know, a great thing. And even in the town, the one of the sheikhs who had helped negotiate the deal, he said, you know, these young guys, you know, I asked, do you think they're terrorists? No, he said, you know, they're just sons of the village and, um, and they played a positive role in, you know, deciding to put down their guns and allow things to go back to normal. So... You know, it's it's a very tough time for people who wanted to change their country for the better. Um, but after, you know, all these years of war, there are these deals being hammered out, um, you know, oftentimes under, you know, huge coercion and force. But it's it's happening. Um, this is what's going on on the ground. And you need to see that. And you also need to not just go there and talk to the people the government put in front of you. You need to talk to people who left and the people who are absolutely devastated by it. Um, and that's that's what we can the best we can hope to do. When I'm back in Beirut, um, you know, I'm basically talking to people from all sides, talking to people from um, Assad's alliance, from Hezbollah, from people who support the regime to people who've been living in these opposition areas for years and you know people say oh you're not on the ground this gets leveled at you you're not on the ground how can you know well some of these people we've known for years we've met them outside of Syria you know you you find out over a long period of time uh, who you can rely on and you always always attribute um, everybody lies everybody lies uh, in this war I mean that meaning all sides um, not, you know, reliable sources. But um, you just have to double-check everything whenever there is news, say, put out by state media, you check with the other side. When the rebels say something, you check on the government side and so forth. Um, so there are ways to do this job, and it's not always, you know, you can't always say 
this is exactly what's happening, but you can say the opposition and the regime are saying the same thing, and that gets you pretty close to where you want to be. Um, as far, and then uh, let's see, March this year, I went to the uh, Kurdish-held areas in the north, so that gave another look at the conflict, and also met with people there who oppose the you know, Kurdish-led uh, administration, and who feel that this is all just a big gamble the Kurds have taken with the regime and that this is uh, as one dissident described it sandcastles that once the regime is strengthened in other parts of the country this little Kurdish experiment is going to all go away um, met, we met Christians there who felt that you know they were worried that this was going to become a Kurdistan with uh, and they were not going to be equal citizens and we also met Christians who are fighting alongside the Kurdish forces who said, you know, this is the the only way forward for the future. So no matter where you go, it's not true that, you know, there's one narrative that's going to be thrown at you. If you know what you're doing and if you already have contacts set up in advance, you can always find out quite a bit more than whoever your hosts are would like you to find out. And I think language is also quite important. I speak Arabic so I'm able to kind of pick up on things. And sometimes, you know, for example, in Damascus, uh, a lot of people talk about the, the minders or in um, the Kurdish-held areas, the minders. Sometimes those people are just someone who, you know, might be a journalist in their own right who's doing it for extra money. And, you know, they're not they're not on your back the whole time and you can go out on your own and have your own conversations if you have the ability to communicate with uh with local people and if you can kind of uh you know know how to how to get around so uh, and then as far as the rebel areas it's very difficult it's very difficult to uh to get there um i was uh, i've gone to turkey many times to the border to meet with rebel commanders, activists, people who go in and out. Um, and uh, and that was also very important when the Russian bombardments began. Uh, NPR was there on the border and talking to people who had just fled, had paid huge bribes to flee across the border, which was closed to them. Um, so you hear stories from them directly. And uh, then we were there when the, the original... Oh old times when the original truce began that the U.S. and Russia had negotiated. So, you know, you uh, we do our best. We do our best. Um, but I think that anyone who's promising uh, the truth uh, that they are, you know, exclusively privy to as if it's been, you know, under a rock and the, the mainstream media just doesn't want to see it. I think that is a bit, a bit uh, silly. You've covered this war for four and a half years it's even longer at this point um is there anything that in your reporting you know has stayed with you um or especially kind of taken you taken you by surprise over the course of uh, over the course of your reporting uh i think that you know i had never in my life had uh, grown men cry to me and that is very hard I remember even just in the early years of the conflict, meeting a man who was a refugee. Uh, he he had you know put his family in an apartment with um, you know other women in the family, and he was uh, 
they he they couldn't be in the same city for some reason they were dependent on aid in different places and he was living under a bridge and he said i'm like a dog and he just started crying and this is a grown man who could be you know my father's age and it was just you can't imagine how you know low things are for people right now they're just uh they're refugees they don't have rights to work normally um they're you know they're a huge kind of uh economic burden on the countries they're in and so they're barred from um you know many jobs freedom of movement um it's it's very tough for these people it's very tough just as it's tough for a lot of these host communities that you know, have seen, uh, you know, all these guys coming in and working in for less than them and nothing's regulated. And, you know, it's it's just an absolutely terrible situation. And this is not the people who are under the bombs. These are just all these hundreds of thousands of people in the region whose lives have been uprooted and destroyed and people who were just leading, you know, a middle class life. And, you know, it's not to say that... um there aren't many people who who believed in these uh, these uprisings and who wanted to change their country, um, but uh, certainly they have not gotten what they wanted, and even worse, have been you know completely dispossessed. And this is not just people who supported the rebellion; these are people who maybe supported the government um, and had rebels take over their area or. Um, or people who really didn't care about either side and just had their lives kind of turned upside down. I mean, at, at CSS, we kind of, you know, we cover the the broader issues, right? We're not we're not in it every single day, I suppose, like you are. And it's not a question, I guess, you usually ask um, uh, of an expert. But you know, what, h- how do you keep going? How do you keep you know getting up in the morning and and taking on this story again and again as it kind of it kind of only spins worse. Um, I mean, I did not cover Syria from the kind of nice, happy early days when the protests began. I started covering it in 2012 when the uprising was already armed. You know, you still had weekly demonstrations and we were still counting, oh my gosh, this many protesters got shot at demonstration. Oh my gosh, the helicopters have bombed the demonstration. Oh, oh my goodness, there's been a suicide bombing in Damascus, and there's a new group called Jabhat uh, al-Nusra. You know, you, we really saw, I've saw in my, the course of my reporting, kind of the evolution from, um, from, from bad to worse. And, um, but I, I really love my work. I mean, being a journalist is kind of like being a bartender, you know, you have all these strangers <laughs> maybe telling you their stories and it's, a uh, already it's, it's kind of fascinating to, and, and even if it's painful to have people open up to you and tell you their experiences. And then you have, you know, the duty to transfer what they're going through to the world and try to do it justice and put it in context and I think it's um for me to imagine someone plopping in here right now with no uh no experience on the conflict it's it's really hard to imagine I mean I feel like I'm still learning every day how to do my job better so I feel like 
I have to keep going with this. I mean, it's uh, it's very important. And I've, you know, with Aleppo, uh, you know, I've been sleeping in the office these past couple of days because it's just 24-7 reporting and you're constantly getting messages on all kinds of platforms and your phone and wherever. Um, you know, these are people you've kept in touch with the whole time. And and you just feel like this is this is the moment to, you know, really keep going. This is definitely not the moment to to stop reporting. And it's um, it's fascinating. It's fascinating. And yes, painful. But, you know, you feel a duty to these people to 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 convey what's happening. Um, and, you know, you see you see some reports, sometimes people who don't normally report on Syria kind of dabble in it. And there's so many pitfalls. I mean, it's easy to say, oh, my goodness, these people are being bombed in the siege. Um, if you don't know, the history of the battle in Aleppo, how it got to this point. It seems like something that's, you know, happening in a vacuum. But as a matter of fact, some people were very happy to see this last rebel-held bastion cleared. Um, some people are cheering in the streets uh, earlier this week and cheering when they realized it was over because of how much this city has been through. Um, and uh, Aleppo, if we want to talk about that, since it's been in the news, it was Syria's economic hub. Um, it has a huge merchant class. It's, uh, and many of those people were not for a revolution. E even months into the uprising, you know, there were not really protests in Aleppo. And why was that? You know, people had an economic interest in keeping things as they were. And, but the uprising came to them. And you can even meet original activists who supported the uprising, who were protesting at, say, Aleppo University, who were not happy to see the rebels come into town and take over the eastern half of the city because it changed everything, really. Um, and the opposition, many opposition people would argue that the regime is responsible for everything getting to that point, that they shouldn't have used such, such force, um, um, but uh, with Aleppo, I mean, it, it it became really a microcosm of the civil war. You had a city divided for the past four and a half years and um, and both sides suffering, even if the East has been, you know, is just on another level because of the airstrikes and more recently because of the siege. But we shouldn't forget that over the summer, uh, rebels from the countryside led by... Um, an Al-Qaeda-affiliated group managed to besiege the government-held districts and completely cut them off. And, um, and it, that was quite a frightening situation for people on that side. And I know people who left during that time and fled, uh, or fled immediately after. So it's a, you know, long story short, you know, this is, this is a war that requires a lot of background um, it's not something you can just jump into, and that certainly keeps me going to report on it. Well, that's encouraging. T talking about the breadth of people you've talked to on, on all opposing sides and, and you know people who are just affected by it on, on neither side, um, what, what's the opinion that you, you've got from people on uh, the West's reaction or specifically the U.S. Um, reaction to it? What are people saying about that? I can give a little uh, anecdote. Uh, after 
Trump was elected, I called up all my contacts um, to see, you know, what they what they thought of that. And uh, the opposition said they had indeed been hoping Hillary would come into office. Um, she had been speaking of some kind of safe zones, um, and she was quite careful about how she phrased that. She said, you know, this would be done in you know, discussions with Russian partners, with Turkey. She wasn't promising, you know, a sudden uh, revolutionary change of events, but they felt like they at least had her ear and she was at least open to finding solutions um, to create some kind of zone where people could live a normal life and, you know, and and, and run things um, in the north of Syria. But uh, no, it was Trump, and Trump has um, appointed kind of a a motley crew of people with divergent views on what to do about Syria and the Middle East, and divergent views on Assad's allies, Iran and um, and uh, Russia. But it what does seem clear is he's not, you know, into the rebels, and he thinks they're all a bunch of jihadis. So you know, keep Assad there and. You know, that'll be hunky-dory. So, uh, yeah, I called up um, uh, Dr. Busseina Shaben. She is the advisor to President Bashar al-Assad. And um, she said, you know, she was quite circumspect. She said, you know, we'll see. But she said, you know, if uh, if uh, America changes its policy, it would be great. I'm not recalling her exact words. But, um, you know, she was saying, you know, this could be, this could be a new page because of what uh, Trump has said. Uh, I also reached uh, Faris Shahabi, who's uh, a member of parliament from Aleppo, and who is one of these industrialists who, you know, feels like the West has ignored what the rebels did to the city for the past four and a half years. And he said, yeah, I'd be I'd be very eager to, you know, meet with anyone from, talk to anyone from Trump's team. And, um, you know, he said it, it's probably a good thing. Uh, so the, I think the, the regime is kind of cautiously optimistic about this. Um, and uh, as for the opposition, an activist uh, told me, you know, they had, re- they had pinned their hopes on Hillary. So um, that's kind of the, the view from Syria right now. I think the opposition will still try to um, push Trump to consider, um, you know, at least the, uh, the needs of... Um, civilians in these areas that have been under bombardment but um i don't see trump diverging drastically from what obama has been doing which is to not get too involved um and maybe even this aid to these rebel factions will uh start to dry up because now all the rebels are being shipped off to idlib and it is very difficult for the u.s to continue to justify supporting rebels in an area that um, has a strong presence of, uh, of hardline rebel factions. Before we finished, we talked about what perspective she'd had from being on the ground and what those in Washington might miss. I think right now, uh, kind of the discussion in D.C. from, you know, my base in Beirut is like, oh, either, oh my goodness, we have to do somersaults to, you know, get back in this game and reverse things. Or, no, we have to wash our hands of this. They're all a bunch of, like, Al-Qaeda people and whatever. Um, 
I mean, this is this is the discourse I'm hearing coming out of D.C., at least the policymaking circles. And I would just say that there's um, it's not it's not really either of those uh, that that policy has to be limited to. You know, I talked to an activist who runs uh, a network that works throughout Syria. And when I say activist, I don't mean, you know, he's he's asking for a no-fly zone. No, he's a civil activist. This is a group that um, they have people in, in areas under everyone's control. They had people in Raqqa. Recently, some members of their team were were killed in Islamic State-held areas. They have people in Kurdish-held areas, people in government-held areas, rebel-held areas, etc. And what he was saying is that um, the West, um, other international groups aimed at fostering, you know, uh, you know, a peaceful way forward have kind of pulled back. They've just like pulled out the rug from under them. And when, you know, when you're supporting people like that, you know, he was saying we're involved in every single um, negotiation whenever there's a truce, whenever there's, um, you know, people coming together and trying to make a ceasefire, you know, these peace, piecemeal ceasefires. You know, we're the ones who are doing that. You know, Syria isn't just, uh, oh, let's find out which rebel group isn't so bad and we can back them. It's not, oh, we have to work with Assad. No, there's, there are people, there are regular people who are trying to move their country forward, who are trying to get people together, and, um, and they, need, they need support. Um, I think it's, you know, kind of disturbing this, oh, we have to find somebody to back. You know, I, I was talking to a friend from Aleppo who made a, a film about, you know, when the war came to his town, what came to his district. And he had gone to show this film in Germany and people were saying, oh, what do we do? What do we do? He said, why should you do anything? Of course, it's not um, just a Syrian conflict now. You have so many, so many countries involved. You have Iran, you have Russia, you have the Gulf have western backers but i think that the voices of regular people who are trying to find a way forward for their country and who are trying to do these kind of just try locally to at least get ceasefires at least get ceasefires so that they can open a new chapter and maybe one day they will go out on the streets again um, who knows? But I think right now in Syria, what I hear the most from regular people is they want ceasefires. They want, you know, the fighting to stop and they want Syrians to talk to each other. Um, and it is a very difficult thing, but um, I think it is it's a worthy goal. Well, awesome. Yous, thank you so much for, for bringing those voices uh, to us. We really appreciate it. Anytime. I am very happy to join you. And that was NPR's Alison Muse joining me on the phone from Beirut. If you've reached the end of this week's podcast, I want to thank you for joining me once more. And as we go into the new year, do get in touch if you have any suggestions for what to cover, if you'd like to hear more shows like this, or anything else you want to add. We'll be back with more next week. Thanks for listening.